0: Hello, food world! It's Robert Crutchfield, your favorite foodie friend from Crutchfield Cooks, the podcast, here with another interesting and exciting episode. I got a question for you. How do you go from running barbecue cook-offs to running a worldwide food competition involving thousands of people across a dozen different categories? Personally, I have no clue. But I know who does know, and that's Mike McLeod, the CEO of the World Food Championships. Lucky us. Mike's here to tell us all about it, and then some. Here's Mike. We're here with Mike McLeod with the World Food Championship, and uh, I'm sure we're going to run out of time before we run out of stuff to talk about, so we're... We're pretty much going to get right into it. First of all, Mike, let's, let's go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to what's your background, how you came about to start the world food championship and all that stuff. And then we'll get into some of the more exciting recent events.
1: Happy to Robert. Thanks for having me. So it all began back in 2005, when a good friend of mine, Tony Stone, it was a big barbecue guy that everybody knows in the industry, but he was a big barbecue guy in my hometown and he was a past mayor and successful businessman. And he had uh, he had come to my grand opening and new building I I had renovated in our hometown and sit down with me and just posed the question. He said, Mike, you ever thought about bar- marketing barbecue? And I said, no, I sure... I sure haven't, but I sure as heck enjoy eating it. And it, it just started the conversation that turned into an opportunity to work with the Kansas City Barbecue Society. And in 2006, if I remember correctly, we became the agency of record for KCBS. We went through a, a big RFP process and negotiation process with the board and brought some ideas to the table that they never thought of and basically pledged to them that, that we would grow them or, we wouldn't charge them a penny for what we, what we had in mind. And lo and behold, after a couple of years, we got the flywheel turned and it, it led to massive growth, both in contest, membership, and especially in sponsorship. And then a couple of years after that, we even gave birth to a club barbecue tour, first national barbecue tournament ever on that kind of level. And it, it just really whetted their appetite for competition food. And about five or six years into it, we, we realized that barbecue was a big silo type industry and it was inclusive of other kinds of food like dessert. Sometimes a steak, certainly side dishes, you know, teams were competing and in addition to the barbecue categories, they are like, can we do something else? And enterprising contest directors gave them an opportunity to do that. And so it just sparked an idea with us that there's a lot of genres of food that could benefit from competition food. So why is there not a Super Bowl of food? And we started thinking about that more than than we could predict. And eventually we just decided, okay, look, somebody needs to do something about it. It might as well be us. So we, we set out in 2010 and created a, a game plan of what eventually would become the World Food Championships. And we launched it two years later in Las Vegas with Adam Richman and Caesars as our partners. And uh, ever since then, we've been off to the races. 2012, we had a little over 200 teams come out of the woodwork, many of them home cooks. Some of them chefs and a lot of them were, were barbecue teams looking for something new. And we had a hell of a lot of fun. Didn't make a nickel for several, any of the year that we we're in Las Vegas, to be honest didn't. But we, we learned a lot and, and we got on a, a road of, of uniqueness when it came to competition food and to, the rest is history.
0: So. Well, I can imagine that the Las Vegas is not the cheapest place to, to start something of the sort. So you I always- can.
1: It's actually pretty affordable for contestants, hmm. but it's certainly not affordable for event organizers. It was very, very... Well, that's what, I,
0: that's what I meant. As a lot of people that know my background, my grandfather on my father's side was a chef, not only here in Houston, but in New Orleans, among other places. Not competitive for chefs in New Orleans, yeah. No, not at all. You, know, you, you can just walk into town, no problem. <laughs> anyway... Talk to the Brennan's while you're at my, it. My 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 grandfather, he both worked for other people and owned his own restaurants and catering firms. And he used to tell newer people, as the family story says, that if you can't start a business, particularly a food business, without taking a penny out of that business for a minimum of a year, don't even start. That's right.
1: That's a very smart statement.
0: Yeah, it was true for him back in the 1930s and the 1940s. I, I fear it's just as true now.
1: Same thing goes with events, although I think it takes, I think you would extend that to about three years before
0: you can take a penny out and doing events. Uh, either way. So talk to, talk to us a little bit. For those that aren't familiar with the World Food Championships and haven't had the opportunity like I have to talk to you or John McFadden or Tina Crutchfield and some of the other people have been involved. Talk to them a little bit about how it's how it's structured, how it what happens each year, and and how do you get from all these hundreds and hundreds of teams down to what you call the final table and the ultimate world food champion.
1: So it's like a, a league of professional sports. It's almost like baseball, basketball, football, etc. You know we we have a full year of of sanctioned or qualified or preferred events out there that, that contestants can go and participate in. And in our world, you have to win a golden ticket. You basically have to qualify to get into the world food championships. And then you, you get to select if, if you weren't hard coded into a particular genre. You get to pick one of twelve categories, and it's been. It started out with seven. It went to ten for several years, and now we just added two more: cocktail and live fire. So we operate basically the world's largest kitchen arena. We're inside a ninety thousand square foot building, and we use about a hundred thousand square feet outside for barbecue and things like burger grilling and steak and live fire. So we we basically had to build a, a. a playing field, and then we had to focus on leveling the playing field to make sure that everybody plays by the same rules, has the same equipment, has the same time frame, and the same requirements to compete in this, this super event. So we, we spent the first three, four, five years really perfecting that model, trying to, to make sure that anybody who wanted to put forth their best recipe in dessert or in sandwich or in burger or any of our 12 categories that they they could do that execute it in a in a time frame that was necessary and then follow rules and guidelines on how to how we're going to judge and how we're going to score uh, all of those dishes in in a fair manner so people are there's about 800 events that are tied to us somehow and out of those events are 800 golden tickets that are up for grabs and we we register contestants until we get full in each one of our categories and we can field right now about 360 teams so it it's incumbent upon the the winner of a golden ticket to get registered and to get into their category of choice And then to follow all the, uh, the deadlines that we set forth going into the championship. For example, unlike other contests, especially barbecue contests, we, we require our contestants not only to tell us about themselves online and in our portal, but they have to upload their recipe and title their recipe and give us a description of their recipe. And we do that for several reasons. Number one, we want to, to make sure that we have data that that can help us as it pertains to allergies. We have data as it pertains to the blind judging process. We want each one of our judges to know you're about to, to eat a cherry infused smoke flavored bananas foster. And that, that information is critical to our judges because they are sequestered in the opening round. Just like you would be at a barbecue contest, but at a barbecue contest, everyone's trying to guess at a flavor or a certain profile that a judge will like, and we reversed and engineered that. We basically said, wait a minute, no one goes into a restaurant unless they know the chef and it's a special experience. No one goes in a restaurant and just says, serve me something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the whole guise of trying to figure out what works in barbecue or in steak, as far as flavors go, just didn't makes sense to us and we, we, we decided there needs to be a contract. There needs to be a contract between the cook and the, and the judge. And we'll let the cook tell us what that contract looks like. And then we'll have the judge tell the cook how well they executed it. So throughout the year, as you register to get in one of these categories, you've got to follow these procedures and then you got to show up and you, for your day of competition, you got to compete against other champions that are in that category and you hope to make the finals to go into a final challenge two days later that that uses a required ingredient that everyone has to do. And then from there, we determine the winner of that category and they become a champion in our nomenclature of burger, of seafood, of rice noodle, you name it. And then we take a little break. We, we took a page from the world series of poker. When they used to have their final table months later for TV purposes, we decided to have our final table, which after they've all won their prize money at the event, they get a chance at another hundred thousand dollars at what we call the final table. And, and some people call this the ultimate food fight. Some people will call it the culinary gauntlet. The reason is it's three more challenges localized to where we're doing it. Like we did in South Carolina and you had to really understand South Carolina of Southern cuisine. We did it in New Orleans once year, one, one year. So you had to really understand the, the, the Cajun approach. And then we did it in Bentonville. We were done in Indianapolis. But we do that about five, four or five months down the road where all 10 of our champions, which will now be 12 after this year, come together and say, okay, congratulations, you all did great. You all won at the main event, but now you got a chance to win a hundred grand. So here's what you got to do. Here's three more challenges. And we do an elimination process. We go from, we'll go from, we we'll go from 10 champions to five. We cut the field in half after the first challenge. Then we go from five to three. And then those final three, get one more chance to, to cook and try to take home that hundred thousand dollar payday.
0: Well, and I think one, one of the things I like about the final table is not just that, but it's a matter of, okay, you may be the world seafood champion, you may be the world barbecue champion, but final table is your chance to prove you're not a one trick pony, right? Because, exactly because right. Uh, when you get to final table and I saw some of this year's final tables on the internet, when you get to final table, it could come from any of those 12 cuisine, cuisines and then some.
1: That was, that became very important to us about, about halfway through our, our 10 year development. We realized that it really if we're going to be like the american idol of food then it is about being a great or the best cook of the lot it's not about being a great dessert champion it's not about being a great barbecue champion it's about can you cook anything that's thrown at you how good of a culinary artist are you and so we We spent a lot of time as we shifted to this cooking method determining what is that going to look like. And I'm very proud of the format that we use now. It's it's unique to the industry. It's unique even to TV. And I think it's I think it really stands the the test of the culinary gauntlet pretty well. Well,
0: well that and how bizarre is it that your your current champion what people don't understand is when when you're at final table, you have Teams of three, and they have these other two people that can rotate in and out. So you basically have teams of five. Your your current champion, John McFadden, was a team of one. Yeah, right. Yeah, was, we have was, a tap. It was literally one guy against nine teams of three chefs. Yeah. And he, he kicked them all to the curb.
1: Yeah. You, you can have as up to five members on your team, but you can only have three in the kitchen at any given time. So right. we have a ta- tap in, tap out role. And uh, John McFadden is, is just a phenom. Yeah. He didn't do any
0: tapping in and out. No, (laughs) he
1: he did very little tapping too. He was busy all the time and, and he, he did such a phenomenal job at the main event, winning the seafood category. He was like a machine. We had a, we had a, a Michelin star chef who was one of our master judges walking around and, and determining based on our new format, who deserve to go into the finals if they didn't score well enough to go in the finals. And, and that's been a new wrinkle that we, we love that we added the 10th anniversary. And I had that, that Michelin star chef came up to me and said, you know, I, he said, I'm from Australia. And he said, I want you to know there's another Australian here who, if, if he doesn't win your championship in seafood, I want him to come work for me. He said, this, this guy's. This guy's got the, the goods. And every one of my master chefs had John McFadden on their, their note card and their recommendation to move forward. If he didn't score high enough to move forward. Well, I didn't need to, he, I didn't need him because he scored, no, he, he scored one of the top, top scores. So he made it in anyway, and right. that was, that was through the blind judges. So, so we knew going into the final table, this, this guy knew his business and he was going to be a formidable, a contestant. He almost didn't make it through the second challenge though. And, and that's the cool thing about the final table challenge. It's always been, since we implemented this rule, the replication of a dish of another chef. So you get, you get and go, you get to taste a, a dish. We started this with Dickie Brennan in New Orleans. So there's your, your New Orleans connection. The first time that, that five champions tasted another dish, it was Dickie Brennan's, I think it was red snapper. Don't, don't double check me on that, but it was red fish and they had basically 15 minutes to taste it and ask him questions, make their notes. And then the next morning they had to remake it and serve him. And he got to be one of the judges. And so that process almost knocked John McFadden out. We, we went to Chef Rios in Bentonville. He's a James Beard nominee in, in Northwest Arkansas. And he came up with a dish that was just incredibly tough to, to do in an hour. And I think John was third, uh, one, two, three, he's the third in the, in the five that moved forward. So, or the three that moved forward. And then of course, in the, in the final challenge, which he had a little bit more of a understanding of what the final challenge was going to be because all of the contestants did, he just knocked it out of the park. I mean, it it wasn't even close. It wasn't even close. he was, he was 10 points ahead of second place. And he, so the, the second dish that he had to create was the one that almost KO'd him. And, and the same thing has happened at, at previous final tables with this new culinary gauntlet strategy, the person you think might take it all down, like Preston Wynn. I think Preston Wynn, our our champion before McFadden, he barely made it on the second challenge in South Carolina, but then he came back on the third challenge and just, you know, blistered it and, and did an excellent job. He didn't blow away the competition because that year, uh, Jack Mack from Chef Jack from, from Indianapolis. He was right there on on Preston's heels. I think he lost by like half a point, which was which was a tough tough loss.
0: Yeah, I, it, but that's one of the things to me as a as a spectator and and whatever else I may be that I like about the World Food Championships is that there are other international competitions out there, principally inside, say, World Chefs or the American mm-hmm. Culinary Federation but they're mm-hmm. very definitely geared toward professionals and, and they're very oriented toward fine dining. Mm-hmm. You know, here in Houston, one, part of our food heritage and whatnot is, everybody called her Mama, Mama Ninfa, Ninfa Lorenzo, who was one of the people that was credited, been credited with popularizing fajitas in the United States. Mama Ninfa never went to culinary school. Right. Mama Nifa didn't do fine dining. Mama Nifa started out as a widowed single mother who was cooking food out of the back end of her house, just trying to keep the bills paid.
1: Yeah. And that's, and became... that's her
0: culinary. That, that, I mean, she's a she's a she now I mean, unfortunately, she's passed away now. And she got not just culinary, but she became such a community leader. She wants to, she went on to speak at the Republican National Convention, among other things. But the point is, uh, she doesn't fit within that ACF World Chefs construct. Whereas the World Food Championships, as I understand it, the better metaphor would be the U.S. Open. Yes, anybody that's ever picked up a club and swung it at a ball
1: has a chance. Can
0: can can, can work through the process and at least in theory become the U.S. Open champion, whether you're amateur, pro barely know which end of the club to grab or what. And to me, if the, the World Food Championship is the same thing with all these qualifying other competitions, especially the fact that they're independent competitions. I think it's important to note that although these are like in your network, most of these 800 competitions are not competitions that the World Food Championship directly runs. They're just independent affiliated competitions run by in some cases, completely separate people.
1: Yeah, and they run them in different manners. Well, that's in, what I'm saying. Yeah, we, we have certain baseline requirements that they have to meet, but they can, you know, they, they can have any kind of competition or process in which they determine their winners as long as it's fair. Yeah. And, but, but to your point about the US Open, you're, you're absolutely right. We, we don't discriminate against someone's background, whether they are right. self, self-taught or a classical chef, who went to Johnston and Wales or what, whatever, we don't, we're blind. I mean, it's like lady justice. You know, when yeah. it comes to food, we, we try yeah. to be blind. Theoretically, blind.
0: anybody with a skillet can be the next world food champion.
1: That's right. That's right. And, and that's, I think that's what makes not only our platform unique and, and, and gives it a chance to all cooks out there who are passionate about food, but it's, but it's, you know, it's the thing that it, it's like the, the Bobby Jones of golf, right? Bobby Jones was never a professional, hmm. but. I mean, would you like to have been him? Of course, you know, one of the best of all time. And what we're, we're trying to, and it's like American idol, right? I mean, you, if, if you're, if you've got an incredible voice or an incredible talent for America's got talent, where, where, where is your break? Where, where do you get your break in life? Well, there are shows and there are platforms that, that you can pursue and you can have your breakout moment. And that's what we're trying to be in for the cooking industry.
0: Absolutely. And I find it interesting you talk about your beginnings in the barbecue aspect of things because what was it? A year ago, maybe less than a year ago, the World Food Championship started its own barbecue series, which is only a small part of your feeder system into the larger competition, but it is an expansion of of what you're doing directly to advance the whole idea of food sports
1: yeah so up until last year we have always had a barbecue sanctioned portion of our event that leaned on heavily um, some of the majors in in barbecue sanctioning whether it's kcbs or ibca or memphis and may memphis barbecue network i should say champions whatever and While I, I did, we did that for, for years because it was just easier to, to work with the barbecue leaders. The, the thing that, that we kept trying to sprinkle into those industries was, hey, please see, think outside the box. We'll, we'll, we'll do a division on the second day that, that requires the silver platter process, which is what we see on the inside of the arena. And it's so beautiful, you know, what, what the cooks do with their food, how they present it, that we think barbecue can be beautiful too. You know, it doesn't have to be six ribs packed next to each other neatly and just on a bed of lettuce or greens. And so we just finally decided we, we need to, we need to take this on. And now we're, we are proudly working with Famous staves of America Uh, We are running our own qualified series uh, at 15 locations throughout the country, and we're allowing the teams uh, to still live within the box for ribs and for chicken, but we allow them to live outside of the box when it comes to flavoring, and they are able to turn in an actual recipe card and a, a flavor profile for their dish so they can make it spicy and sweet, or they can make it habanero hot, or they can make it... Chipotle this or pineapple that, whatever they want to do, it's, it's up to them. And our judges will, will score them appropriately based on how they execute it. And then the silver platter comes into play for the wild card because famous Dave's is looking at these dishes and these cooks and saying, okay, you got something we might want to put on the menu. Let us know. We're going to do a wild card challenge. You make whatever you want to, as long as you do it within the time frame." And you can explain it to us and present it to us and it's great. So the, the famous Dave's franchisees and corporate people are loving this. The barbecue teams, believe it or not, who participate in it and kind of get it and understand it, they're loving it because they feel like they have some ownership in, in what the the judges do with their, their dish, right? I'm serving you X, Y, Z dish. And they like the fact that they can play around with flavors, something that might be a a strength of theirs and not guessing, you know, not, not shooting in the dark on what, what a judge is going to like as far as tenderness or taste. So that's where we're starting that series. We've already got words that that series is going to be renewed and that it's going to be expanded. And we're probably going to flip it over into a silver platter process for all three uh, categories in that scenario, and then eventually we'll do that at uh, World Food Championships for barbecue. It'll you will have to turn in on a silver platter whatever you're making. So I don't know what this is going to do to the rest of the industry, and honestly, I don't, I, I don't have a dog in that hunt. I'm not trying to say that the industry should overhaul itself. I, I'm just saying that the way we like to see food and and the way we like to present food to the judges and the way consumers like to to witness what is occurring the silver platter turn in method is is so much more favorable and entertaining than a styrofoam box that we're going to we're going to stick to it and we're we're going to continue to elevate barbecue the best we can through that process
0: okay we're coming up to about the last 10 minutes here I do want to get into the more recent news with tell us more about the New Deal with the IMG and particularly what that means as far as some of the international expansion. John, of course, this year's winner was your first non-U.S. winner being from Australia, but it sounds like we're going to be seeing a lot more of that.
1: Well, we we think so, and we we certainly are open to to that development. We had probably the biggest international contingency at the last championship that we'd ever had. We had, like in burger, we had a Japanese team. We had a French team. We had a Dubai team and American teams. So it was, it was quite the collection of cooks and, and that's a sign of, of what we've been trying to achieve over the years. Of course, we got interrupted by COVID uh, for a couple of years, but our goal has always been as the, as the world food championships to. To have representation from around the world at our event and make it open to all continents. So we, we, we have been in numerous conversations about expanding over the last four or five years, and I've been looking at proposals and looking at potential partners and trying to figure out what is the best way for this thing to move forward, for it to grow appropriately and be funded appropriately and Turns out that IMG was was the ideal match for us. We we got very familiar with their whole enterprise, which covers uh, not only food events in, in wonderful international cities like Singapore, Sydney, Abu Dhabi, etc., but they are also very big in professional sport leagues and then developing leagues. Right. So as we shared our vision and, and they shared their interest in trying to take food sport to, to a whole new level. We just realized, okay, this, this feels really good and let's, let's put all this in a, in a legal framework and see if we, if it still feels good. And we spent about six months doing that. And uh, sure enough, we, we didn't change our mind throughout the entire negotiation process. And, and today I have the, the biggest partner of, of capital, of vision, of talent and of reach than, than I ever could have dreamed of. And it's what it means to us, I believe is longevity. It means that we, we will truly reach our global vision quicker and better. And then for me, hopefully it's, it's one of those legacy plays that, you know, once, once Mike McLeod decides to, to hang it up and play golf every day with his son, that this, this will continue to be a, a phenomenal platform through the leadership of other very smart, very capable, very passionate people. So it it's, it's been a labor of love, but now it's about to become a, a global a global phenomenon that, that uh, could not have happened under just my my personal leadership and capabilities.
0: Sure, sure. Let's talk venue a little bit before we, we finish up. Final table this year, of course, was in Dallas. Where's, where's, where's this year's championship going to be and where are you going to do final table the next time? Is that going to continue to rotate? How are you, you going to do that?
1: So So this year's final table has not been announced on where it's going to be. Our main event will be in Dallas. Last year's final table was in Bentonville with Sam's Club and, and Walmart as our hosts, and we we loved doing it in Bentonville because of them because of of the whole retail and product uh, development side of things that that we'll be talking about probably the next time you and I get on on this together. But the the option is coming down to Bentonville or international city. Uh, Now with IMG and its reach and its events like Taste of London, Taste of Dubai, Taste of Singapore, uh, Taste of Sydney, we we legitimately have the ability to add a, a final table component to some of those existing events that already have infrastructure and have consumers and sponsors tied to it. So we're we're discussing that possibility of possibly going to our first international destination for the final table. Uh, but we're also weighing that against the commercial value and, and product value of, of keeping the final table in Bentonville, Arkansas. So either option is great for various reasons. We, we hope to have that decision made by the time November gets here so we can announce it in dallas at the main event
0: okay and of course uh, i keep going back to john but john being from australia he can tell you already some of the challenges involved in going from one country to another to compete and not knowing who the suppliers are and not knowing right and trying to pull it all together so certainly shipping a lot of contestants from this country to london to dubai to wherever there would be a lot of logistical challenges not only for the for you as the organizers, but for the contestants as well.
1: Yeah, the easiest thing for us to do would be to stay in Bentonville because domestically, domestic travel, domestic familiarity, my team traveling in the the resources and facilities that exist in Bentonville that give us world class cooking facilities. So that that's the that's the layup strategy, and it's not that it's just a layup. I mean, it's it is a strategic. Uh, goal, no matter what, because with with Walmart and Sam's Club there and their their reach and their power from a commercial standpoint is just unmatchable or unimaginable sometimes. But but it, there's a sexiness to doing an international location too, and and we have to look at the finances of it because we'd want to help the teams get there uh, in some form or fashion, and and then obviously we have to work with new purveyors and suppliers on the food side. So there's a lot to consider and you make a really good point. It may be that we're, we're domestic for another year or two, but uh, I I think our, I would love to see an international final table. And if we can't do that, what we might end up doing is an international tour of champions where we, we take five or six or so many of our. World champions and and put them into a a touring experience that goes to these other events and is replicatable from a from a quality standpoint. So that's the those are the things that that I guess talk about now uh, that I didn't prior to this this merger. So it, it's kind of a fun conversation.
0: Unfortunately, we're going to have to just about cut it off there. Did you want to throw out your URL and any other? contact information for people that might want to get in touch?
1: Yeah. The key one is worldfoodchampionships.com. That's where everyone will find all of our official rules and official announcements and sponsors and categories and things of that nature, and even ticketing, if you want to get tickets to see this year's event or experience some of the elevated sampling offers, offerings that we have. But follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter. We're all, we're there under World Food Champ or World Food Championships.
0: Uh, Thank you one more time, Mike. It has been an absolute pleasure and I do look forward to doing it again.
1: Same here. Anytime, Robert. Thank you.
0: I'll be in touch. Thank you for filling us in, Mike. We look forward to all the exciting and expanded things coming down the pike for the World Food Championships. We're very grateful for your time and for your explanation of some of these things. For the rest of y'all out there... If you want to see some more of our great content, be sure and go to www.learnmoreeatbetter.com. And if you want to help us keep going and growing, don't forget to visit our support page at www.ko-fi.com crutchfieldcooks. That's www.ko-fi.com crutchfieldcooks. Until next time.